Welcome to Paint Radio with your host, Emily Howard and Andrew Dwyer. The radio all about paint, your favorite station, Paint Radio. Emily Howard, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great because we're doing something we've never done before, and that is delving deep into your younger years. That, I believe, is the topic of today's podcast (laughs) because... Joining us today, we've got two guests. We've got Jimmy Robinson Jr., who is a managing shareholder at Ogletree Deacons, Ogletree.com, and Elizabeth Ebanks, shareholder at Ogletree Deacons, but more importantly, a high school compatriot of yours, (laughs) Emily Howard. Elizabeth and Jimmy, how are you? We are doing very well, and I would love to turn this podcast into high school stories, if we can. (laughs) Well, Jimmy, this is what I I was thinking. First half, Elizabeth could share stories about Emily, and then Emily in the second half could share stories about Elizabeth. (laughs) Jimmy, are you okay with that format? I am all for that. I have my own questions to ask. (laughs) People want to know. I'm pretty sure I'll lose service right at that halfway point. <laughs> we know, although I'm sure a lot of people could gain a lot of knowledge from our younger years. Some lessons to be Wisdom. learned. Wisdom. So the official topic, unfortunately, is employment law issues related to COVID. What contractors need to know as they're ramping back up, because obviously certain things have changed. I talk about how we get pre-show notes. And in those notes, Emily told me that, Elizabeth, she covered with you, Elizabeth, should Andrew and I do some pre-show research regarding employment law, and apparently you said no. It's better if you don't. Elizabeth, you'll be glad to know, I know absolutely nothing about what we're about to do. <laughs> well, that's what we're here for. We're happy to introduce this topic to you and everyone else. Awesome. Yeah, this is going to be great. And I'm happy to say this is also sponsored by Bear, bearpro.com. We're going to talk with Matt later. If you listen to Paint Radio, and I know you do, you know that we're in the middle of a wonderful series of podcasts sponsored by Bear, where they're trying to help us all, like I said, get back up to speed in this pandemic and lose maybe not a step, but just as few steps as possible. So we're excited. We got the right people on board here. Again, Ogletree Deacons. Let's start with Jimmy. Jimmy, you're a managing shareholder. I read here that your focus is on traditional labor and employment litigation matters. What falls under the umbrella of traditional labor and employment litigation matters? So everything falls under the umbrella of it. When you're talking about traditional labor, you're talking about unionized and non-unionized workforces, dealing with collective bargaining agreements, dealing with unfair labor practice charges with the National Labor Relations Board. So when you're looking at traditional labor, you're talking about all things dealing with a unionized workforce or trying to maintain a union-free status for the employer. And then when you're talking about employment litigation, that could be anything dealing with the management of employees. So if they file lawsuits under any of the Title VII, uh, the EEOC, if they file lawsuits under the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act with the Department of Labor, we get involved in defending against those litigation for the clients that we represent, mostly corporations. And Elizabeth, I read here that uh, your focus is on employment litigation and employment counseling. Give us an idea of what that entails. That's right. Just like Jimmy said, 
I focus on a lot of race discrimination, gender discrimination, any type of discrimination that you can think of. So disability, religion, anything that falls within that. We represent employers. We're a defense firm. So we represent employers in defending against those. And also, like Jimmy said, wage and hour. So that's those Fair Labor Standard Act kind of questions when we should or should not be paying employees, when they should and should not be coming into work. And then I also focus on restrictive covenants. And so that is your non-compete type agreements, non-solicitation of employees, uh, non-solicitation of customers. And so it's a wide range that we focus on and we counsel on it and we litigate. So I, I provide on the front end ways to kind of maybe stay out of court and protect your business. And then on the back end, we defend against those claims. And if I didn't make it clear at the beginning uh, with all my joking, Obviously, you both are attorneys at Ogletree Deacons, and I see that you've got quite a footprint across the United States. Elizabeth, give us an idea of what Ogletree Deacons does. We do labor and employment. We are a quote-unquote boutique firm, although I think we're at, what, about 800 or so attorneys, so we're rather large. 925. 925 now. Wow. So we have offices across the country. And then we also have some international offices in England and Germany and Mexico, Canada. And so our office, Jimmy and my office is in Richmond, Virginia. We joined Ogletree in 2013 to help open the Richmond office. And so our focus is really Virginia, but we have nationwide clients and nationwide portfolios that we get our other colleagues involved in uh, when needed. Nice. And 925 employees. Emily, this certainly is not a competition, but if you were in, and Elizabeth were at a high school reunion, how many employees would you say APC has now? I mean, you know not you wouldn't tell the truth. Just shy of that. Only not a competition. Yeah, we're about to ramp up. Jimmy, we got big things yeah, in store. We're preparing, preparing for the scale. Yeah. Okay, so let's start by just talking about I assume there are new laws in place as a result of COVID and the pandemic. Can you sort of walk us through, give us sort of an executive summary of what some of these new leave laws are that are now in place? Absolutely. So when you think about leave laws, you really think about family medical leave. That's what the typical law that you think about when an employee goes to their employer and say, I'm not feeling well, I'm suffering from some type of disease or some illness or some sickness, and I need leave to take care of that or to take care of a family member who's suffering from it. You typically, in addition to the sick leave that's provided by your employer, you're allowed to take family medical leave back. And of course, that has some requirements with the size of the employer and the number of months you've worked for them. But typically when you're dealing with that, you're dealing with family medical leave act. Because of the coronavirus, or what we call COVID-19, the federal government came out with the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And, you know, we love some acronyms, so we came up with the FFCRA. And that requires certain employers who have less than 500 employees to provide employees with paid sick leave or expanded family and medical leave for specific reasons dealing with COVID-19. So you can get up to two weeks, up to 80 hours of paid sick leave at your regular rate of pay. If you're unable to work because uh, the employee is quarantined by a health care provider or because of the state tells you you have to be quarantined 
or if you're experiencing some type of COVID-19 symptom or seeking some type of medical diagnosis. And under the FFCRA, remember that's the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, there is a emergency family medical leave. So that is leave that requires those employers with fewer than 500 employees and small businesses with fewer than 50 employees to allow their employees to take up to 80 hours of paid sick leave to care for a family member that is suffering from something to do with COVID-19. And then the last one is the Family and Medical Leave Expansion Act. And that is exactly what it is. You also have an expansion where you get up to two weeks of unpaid family medical leave and 10 weeks of paid family medical leave if, in fact, you are not able to work because your kids can't go to school and the school is closed down because of COVID, you're allowed to get all of that leave. So this is a major expansion to deal with an unprecedented disease. And it really has done some tremendous good for employees out there who aren't able to work because of coronavirus, they are allowed this type of leave to take care of their families and still make ends meet. Jimmy, can you tell us what the size requirements are there again? You said under 500. Is there a size that's too small? You have to be fewer than 500 employees to qualify for this. And some small businesses with fewer than 50 employees, they can have an exemption from the requirement to provide leave due to school closings or childcare unavailability if the leave requires them to jeopardize the viability of the business. So when you're talking about are we too small, you know, if I have six employees and I'm a small business and that's less than 50, of course, and my employee says, I need to take this emergency family and medical leave expansion that's offered under the FFCRA, which again provides 10 weeks of paid leave and two weeks of unpaid leave because my kid can't go to school. If that company applied for an exemption or an exception to that, then they may be able to say, I'm sorry, the viability of our company, we only have six employees. We can't allow you to go out for 10 weeks or we won't make it. And is that something you have to do before you report back to the employee? Or can you say no and then essentially try to figure out if that's okay? You would need to apply for that exemption on the front end before that employee comes to you and say, I need to take 10 weeks of leave under the Family and Medical Leave Expansion Act of the FFCRA. If you haven't applied for that exemption, then in strict conformance to the rules, you're not supposed to say no because the FFCRA provides uh, public and private employers with less than 500 employees that type of protection and those benefits. So what about when someone comes to you and say they're saying, you know, either I have symptoms of COVID or I have tested positive for COVID. What is it that they need to bring to you? What should you be expecting? Like, what are the reporting requirements for that? So a lot of employers are really focused on exactly what you just said. What happens if an employee comes in and has tested positive? Now, 
this is, again, a little unprecedented because most of the time under all of the leave laws, everything that's kind of out there pre-COVID, you had to provide uh, medical documentation. Uh, you could ask an employee for it. And unless they gave it to you, you couldn't move forward with it or you could choose not to provide them those benefits. But with COVID, because everything was so fast moving and because people were quarantined and not working, it was very difficult to get that type of medical documentation from any healthcare provider, especially in that March, April timeframe, that really employers were relying on the employee telling them that, yes, I have these symptoms or yes, here's a positive test that I have and not really requiring more than that. And from that moment on, there are several steps that the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, OSHA, they have come out with to say, this is what you should do once an employee test positive. Step one is you need to immediately isolate or quarantine that employee. They should be sent home if they can be sent home right away, or if not, get them in some space that's away from other workers or contractors or customers, whoever may be there. Now, they're supposed to remain home once they get home until they're released by a physician or public health official. Now that medical providers have kind of gotten a handle on this, they should be in a position to be able to provide that release. But if for some reason that doctor's note is not available, the CDC guidelines provide guidance on when an employee should discontinue self-isolation. So there are specific requirements depending on when the employee tests positive for COVID or when they have last exhibited symptoms. But outside of that, really you just rely on a doctor's note and then they can be released from there. Step two from OSHA is you need to, as an employer, business owner, conduct contact tracing to identify individuals that were near your infected employee. And so what they've really come up with is this 6-15-48 zone or 6-15-48 zone. And that is those who have worked in close proximity or within six feet for a prolonged period of time, which is 15 minutes or more, with the infected employee during the 48-hour period before the onset of symptoms. So if you have your infected employee, they should be identifying, hey, I worked within six feet of you know, Bob, Joe, and, and Susie for more than 15 minutes in the last two days, and I had an onset of symptoms today. And so that's the zone you're really looking for. Once they identify those employees, and you can also identify them as well. You can go to managers and kind of see who was around the individual. But once you identify those employees, you have to then notify them that they have been in close proximity with an infected employee. That's the CDC guidance. You have to be quite careful here not to actually identify the infected employee by name because it is confidential medical information. So really what we say to do is to notify all those workers that you've identified to say, hey, you've been in close proximity of the infected employee. You have to go home for 14 days to ensure that the infection doesn't spread or take a test so that you can get those test results before the 14 days. And then you want to instruct those employees to self-monitor for symptoms, to avoid contact with high-risk individuals, and to seek medical attention if symptoms do in fact develop. You can't force any employee to actually go to a doctor, but it's really just an instruction based on the CDC guidelines. And then lastly, you have to in fact report an infected employee in your workplace if the positive case was quote unquote work related. 
Now, what that means is if you have a situation where you believe that there are other cases developing among workers who have worked closely together, or if there was some type of close exposure to a customer or another contractor or a, another coworker who has a confirmed case of COVID, or if the employee's job duties are in the general public, if they have a lot of exposure to the general public, especially in localities that have widespread transmission, then those cases are generally deemed to be work-related. If you have no idea of any of that, you have to actually just talk to the employee and ask them, hey, how do you believe you contracted COVID? Mm -hmm. If they have no idea, then you have to ask them a little bit about their work activities and their out of work activities to figure out if you can determine if it happened within work or outside of work. You do have to respect an employee's privacy. If they don't want to tell you that they were out at the club doing something that weekend, <laughs> you can't ask that question and you can't ask more information about that. But you try to ask as much information as you can. So you can go back to OSHA to say, hey, we did a reasonable and good faith inquiry to try to figure out if this was work related or or not. It doesn't seem to be work-related, so you don't have to report it. Or we really have no alternative explanation to determine if it's work-related or not. And yes, so we need to report this individual. So when you're reporting all of this to OSHA, correct? Mm -hmm. That's okay. right. And some localities may also require reporting to the local health department. And I say require, it's more of a should than a must. But in a lot of those instances, we've had clients that have had the local health department actually reach out to them and ask specifically, has anyone come in with a positive case? And so usually in those cases, the health department will come to you. But otherwise, if you know you have a positive case that's work-related, you need to report it to OSHA or you will be cited with an OSHA violation. And these requirements, again, there's no minimum. Like if you're under 10 employees, these rules don't apply to you? Well, OSHA actually applies to almost all private sector employers. There's no minimum number. If you're self-employed, that's really one of the only exceptions to it. So this particular one, mostly all employers are going to fall into it. Again, in this case, our audience, painting contractors, if you have a painter who tests positive and you're going through which of our other employees have you come in contact with, does the employer's sphere of responsibility extend beyond employees and extend to, say, customers? That's a great question. It actually does. If you have other contractors or customers or like the homeowner, you should also be notifying them. There is not a requirement as there are with other employees, but if they somehow find out about it and file suit and you never notified them, more likely than not, you would get held liable for that. So yes, if you know that they've had exposure with third parties, you should also be notifying them, again, without disclosing the identity of the person who's actually infected. And you mentioned in your very thorough answer, Elizabeth, the... Uh, <laughs> I'm a lawyer. You, have, um, you, you wonder why you haven't had lawyers on this show. That's why. <laughs> There's much less room for me yeah. to be a snarky smartass with these types of responses. Um, it's very serious I, stuff. Yeah, I know why Emily brought you guys on now. Uh, and now I forget what I was going to... Um, oh, Elizabeth, you referred to some counties or some jurisdictions have additional requirements. What are you advising your clients as far as what's the best source other than Ogletree.com? What is the best source to find your local requirements? I would answer with Ogletree.com because since the beginning, we've been keeping up with 
reopening and closure guidelines, locality guidelines. So we have a number of kind of 50 state charts that go into not just states, but also localities in order to provide that information. But otherwise, you want to go to your Department of Health or most states have a state OSHA department. So like Virginia has the Virginia OSHA. And so those are the ones that you want to go to in order to figure out what you actually need to or are required to do. Speaking of sources, resources, got to jump in. Talk about our awesome sponsor, which everybody knows is Bear, bearpro.com. Back with us, Matt Waskowski, VP of Sales with Bear. And Matt, I understand today you want to talk about the connection between Bear and Kills. I won't ruin the ending. I'll just say those are the two brands you want to talk about. What do contractors not realize that maybe they should? And you're going to tell us right about now. What's what's the connection there, Matt? Thanks, Andrew. And I think it's a great topic that you brought up and that we're going to talk about today, because I think it is something that a lot of our customers, both new and old customers, didn't realize at the time they were dealing with us, as in Bear. But Kills, as a brand name, has been around for many, many years and as a brand that's held up extremely well in the professional contractor, painting contractor segment. I mean, you'd look at a brand like Kills and a brand that becomes a verb is really something you know is moving in the right direction. And the reason why I say that is because I've heard multiple customers, both people that do their own work and people that do work for other people say they're going to Kills that stain or I'm going to put Kills on here to fix that problem. So it's a product line that I think, again, is extremely well received. And our goal today is just to let Listeners know that Bear and Kills are the same company. So as you get on our website at bearpro.com or you look at Bear as a company, Bear and Kills are the same company. The Kills product and Bear products are manufactured out of the same manufacturing plants across the country. There's over 140 years of combined commitment to the painter side of the business between those two brands, the reputations and trusted products on both sides. So we are one. We do specifically look at developing Similar to what you might think of Kills as having those solution-oriented products. And I'd like to share a couple of those products that we feel are pretty innovative. They're relatively new. There's the Bear Bonding Primer. This product is one that you use when you have that really tough surface you want to stick to, whether it be Kynar, PVC, Formica, glass, et cetera, that really tight surface tension where you need a primer to go on there that's going to stick and you're not going to have issues down the road with the top coat flaking off or peeling off. So the bare bonding primer is a great product to use for that. And on the Kills side, we do have also a new product there called Kills Restoration. And as the name says, this product is fantastic to seal in stains from smoke, nicotine, water, rust, all those different things that we see, whether it be a restoration job or any other job. And the most significant innovative part of the Kills restoration is water-based. So it performs like an oil, the attributes, the stain sealing, but it cleans up with soap and water. So it's a great product to use, obviously a lot easier to maintain it. So those two products there, just the Bear and Kills name is one. So if you want to look at either of those brand type products, bearpro.com will get you to where you need to be, B-E-H-R-Pro.com. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate the time. Matt, thank you. Can't thank you enough for sponsoring these podcasts. We love these podcasts, not only because we get a chance to learn more about what's going on at Bear and BearPro.com, but man, there's a lot of opportunity to get better during this pandemic. So back to Elizabeth and Jimmy. 
We were talking about OSHA requirements. Are there any other OSHA regulations, new laws that painting contractors, employers need to be aware of? You know, Andy, surprisingly, OSHA has not adopted any nationwide standards. Instead, what OSHA did was they issued guidance. And in those guidance, they said that these guidance are neither a standard or regulation and that they do not create any new legal obligations for the employer or the employee. So instead, it just contains some recommendations as well as some descriptions of some mandatory safety and health standards. The recommendations were advisory in nature, they were informational, and they were intended to assist the employers in complying with safety and health standards and regulations that OSHA had already put out before either in their federal standards or with their state-approved OSHA plans like in Virginia and VOSHA. But this is a timely podcast in as much as Virginia, which I know that a number of your painters operate inside Virginia, Virginia is the very first state in the country to pass and mandate comprehensive COVID-19 precautions in all workplaces for employers. So that's a tremendously big deal. And according to the Virginia Department of Labor and Industry, it goes into effect the week of July 27th, and there will be published in a newspaper of general circulation. So what it would do, it would require some specific mandates of social distancing in the workplace. The employer has to assess their workplace for potential exposure to COVID-19. They have to mandate face coverings for all employees and customer-facing positions or when social distancing is not possible. It will have requirements for sanitizing common areas daily. And you would think that those things are already in place and most employers are doing it. But we understand and appreciate that some employees are complaining that their employers are not providing that sanitizing. So the Virginia new comprehensive COVID-19 precautions will require that. It also will require easy and frequent access to hand washing and hand sanitizing. And so if you typically are allowed one or two breaks, your breaks may go up to four breaks a day. You will be required as an employer to notify your employee within 24 hours. As Elizabeth talked about notifying folks if someone tests positive for the virus, Virginia now will have a law that says you have to notify employees within 24 hours if they've come in contact with a coworker who tests positive for the virus. And it'll bar employees who are suspected to be positive from COVID-19 from returning to work for at least three days after the symptoms subside, or at least 10 days after they were first diagnosed, or until they receive a negative test for the virus. So even after someone tests positive, if they say, hey, I quarantined for 14 days, I'm no longer positive, the employer can mandate that they have a test. And so there will be some penalties associated with violating these new safety requirements. Typically, that penalty will be about $13,000 for violating the rule, and it could go all the way up to $130,000. And there will be some whistleblower protections 
that bar individuals from retaliation if they report their employer for not complying with the rule. It is quite an extensive 45-page new comprehensive COVID-19 safety and health requirement in the workplace for employers. So is that 13000 per instance and then up to 130 Exactly. That's interesting. You know, it's like it's the exact opposite for ages now we've expected employees to prove that they're sick and now they have to prove that they're not. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> it's interesting. So on that note, what about you're obviously trying to protect everybody in your workplace. You're trying to protect your customers, your crew members, everybody on every job site. A couple of things that we've heard as far as advice that other consultants and contractors have given us have been things like keeping the same crews together all the time and not switching people back and forth. Another one that you guys might be able to help us with is like taking temperatures or doing medical surveys or that sort of thing when they come on site. So we've seen a lot of contractors who will take everybody's temperature when they arrive, when they go to lunch, when they come back from lunch and when they leave. So is that a practice? Are you supposed to be doing that? Can you not do that? Can people refuse that? What's your recommendation as far as kind of testing people's health in any way that you can? Yeah, uh, you're right. Um, many employers have either want or need to conduct some type of entrance screening or COVID testing for employees and visitors, honestly, to, to reduce any risk in their workplace. And this is really governed by the ADA or the Americans with Disabilities Act. Normally, disability-related questions or medical exams are pretty off-limit. I think you guys probably know that most employers can't just ask about people's medical condition. The exception that has always existed is if a medical condition causes or poses a direct threat to either the employee or to others in the work environment. And the CDC and the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, they have both deemed COVID a direct threat. And so that's why you're seeing employers being able to do screenings like this. Some states and localities actually do require testing. It depends on the type of business. It depends on the size of the employer. But there are states and localities like Arkansas, Colorado, Delaware, that require some type of screening or testing. So this is one that you really want to watch. Again, those state and locality orders. You can go to the state government websites to figure out what's required. And it changes I would say weekly. So you really have to kind of stay up on it. But you're very right. There are a couple of different ways that employers are doing it. But one of the first ways is that kind of medical survey or health acknowledgement that you mentioned. And that's really just kind of asking employees, hey, do you have those CDC symptoms? And they list them out, you know, fever, chills, cough, whatever it is, and have the employees check it off and note when they've had the symptoms. So that's one way. Second way is measuring the body temperature um, using some type of thermometer to do so. And there have been a host of companies out there that have been capitalizing on making checking body temperatures as quick and easy as possible. And so you're really kind of checking for that 100.4 fever threshold. If an employee is above that, you can send them home at that point. And then the third way is actually administering COVID tests themselves, which seems kind of extreme, but in some environments, it makes sense to do it. And a lot of companies are just using company personnel rather than medical professionals. So you want to make sure that you are training folks to do it and you're choosing people who are reliable and following company protocols and providing personal protective equipment or PPE to those company personnel that are assigned to those types of tasks. But you just want to make sure that you 
communicate that policy up front to your employees, just kind of like any other company policy. So they're on notice that, hey, I'm going to start getting screened. And so they're not thrown off by that. But yes, absolutely, you can do so for the health of your business. Kind of a hot button question here, I guess. Can you require your employees to wear a mask on the job site? 100% yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's talk about independent contractors. Obviously, you know, many of our listeners have employees, but then quite a few of them also use independent contractors for their crew. As far as unemployment benefits, other regulations, to what extent do those apply to an independent contractor? That's a great question. So you guys will always probably remember back in the end of March, Congress signed into law or passed and then the president signed into law the Coronavirus Act. It was called the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. That was called the CARES Act. And that act had about $2.2 trillion of economic stimulus relief to provide to small businesses, various American workers. And for the first time, there were in this bill unemployment benefits for the gig employees, uh, those who were independent contractors, self-business owners who would not traditionally have unemployment dollars in any type of insurance roster with the state, and they would be eligible. So under the CARES Act, there's a little small program called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program called the PUA. So it provides the unemployment insurance benefit to those individuals who aren't covered by your regular traditional state unemployment insurance program. And it's quite interesting because, as you can imagine, across all 50 states, because they've never provided unemployment benefits to the independent contractor, they don't have an infrastructure in place to figure out, well, you never worked for an employer who paid unemployment insurance benefits into our system for you. So we don't have any record or history of your work history. So we don't have a way to give you those benefits. So it's taken a while, a very long time for a number of states to try to figure out how these self-employed independent contractor gig workers who lost work because of COVID-19, how are they going to apply for this pandemic unemployment assistance? And that's the PUA. And so I'll quickly say in the application process, they'll go through the application process of that particular state and say, hey, I've not been able to work because of COVID-19 or I've had reduced hours because of COVID-19. I haven't picked up painting jobs because of COVID-19. And then the system will display or should display these questions about what have they done in the last 18 months with respect to being independent contractors or self-employed. And in most states, after you complete that process, the system will reject you. And that's the most important part. You always think about the most important part is being accepted. But for the gig employees, you want them to throw you out, to reject the application. Because if they reject the eligibility requirements for traditional unemployment benefits, then it pushes you over 
to the pandemic unemployment assistance. And that's where you get that benefit from the CARES Act. And the last thing I'll say is that the $600 enhancement that the CARES Act provided all unemployment individuals expires within the next couple of weeks. It expires in, by the end of July. And so you couldn't get that 600 enhanced benefit from the federal government unless you receive some benefit from the state. And so the state have all struggled with how much of a benefit do we actually give these gig employees, these self-employed employees, because we have no record, remember. And so a lot of states set threshold. Texas, for example, says the threshold amount that you'll receive for Texas is $207. So every gig employee, every independent contractor or self-employed, you're going to get a base amount of $207. That's in between kind of what most people are receiving, the average. So we're going to give you that $207, and then you'll get that $600 enhanced payment from the federal government. And remember that after you get that $600 enhanced payment, after it expires, you will still be able to get that $207 for an additional 14 weeks. So one thing that's been brought up in our industry pretty frequently, too, is that the extra $600 is kind of making some people not want to come back to work. So they kind of want to write it out until the end. (laughs) (laughs) And so can you discipline employees? Because, I mean, it's very difficult to decipher whether or not someone feels sick or is frightened of being sick or if they think, well, you know what, I think I'll just hang with this paycheck and not work until it's over. Mm -hmm. So is there any disciplinary action that you can take if you think someone's just trying to take advantage of the extra funds? I don't know about you, Jimmy, but this is, I felt like I got this question a lot at the beginning because if it was an employee who actually wasn't sick and wasn't taking care of someone that was sick or there wasn't an issue with childcare um, or something related to COVID, there were a lot of employees that were just like, I don't want to come to work. I don't feel safe. And they had no real basis to say that. Um, and so a lot of times we got questions from clients to ask, do we just have to deal with this? And the answer is no, you don't have to deal with it. Yes, you can discipline. And in fact, get to the point of firing employees who are refusing to come to work. Essentially, you want to have employers follow their attendance policies or attendance requirements that they have. And so just like anything else, if they can't point to a specific reason that they're out that falls under one of these leave laws that Jimmy mentioned or with the Americans with Disabilities Act, then you can discipline them like any other employee who's just not showing up to work up to the point of terminating their employment. Uh, Let's talk hazard pay as it relates to COVID-19. Side note, Emily has convinced our employer that anytime (laughs) she does a podcast with me or we go to a trade show, that that qualifies her for hazard pay. Basically, anytime I'm around the intro. Bully for her. Dave agreed. Yeah, it was pretty quick, actually. I provided advice and counsel. I provided advice and counsel on that. We're doing this podcast. And so, yes, hazard pay follows. And she actually gets, she gets time and a half. Problem is that extra half comes from me. But whatever. (laughs) Good for you, Emily. Um, Is there any hazard pay that employees or employers need to know about related to COVID-19? 
So there's no law that requires the employer to actually pay hazard play. It's an employee relations issue. And although some companies have done so for employees who've worked through the COVID-19 outbreak, we've seen that specifically in the grocery industry. Some have offered an additional 2 to $5 an hour. Some have offered a performance bonus every month that they completed during the COVID period. But there's no law that requires the employer to pay hazard pay. It's typically a benefit that unions in the unionized workforce are trying to negotiate for their employees. And what they're suggesting that this hazard pay recognizes that some job exposes the worker to a greater risk of injury or death because of COVID-19. And so because of that hazard pay for those jobs that are involved, greater discomfort, uh, more exposure, and without that protective measure, uh, even though you have PPE, it doesn't completely eliminate the risk or the hardship. Hazard pay acknowledges that we need to pay you a little bit more for being there and assisting Americans during this unprecedented hardship. But it's not a requirement. There's a lot of peer pressure out there for companies to pay hazard pay. <laughs> and so a lot of them have decided that they are going to. But there is no requirement. The HEROES Act that is up in Congress is suggesting that the federal government provide hazard pay for all essential employees that are what we call first-line responders to the COVID-19 pandemic. What should we be watching going forward as far as bills potentially coming up, things that Congress is looking at as we go into yet another month of dealing with COVID-19? Besides that, are there any other things we should be watching? I think you guys have really touched on a lot of the things that we need to be watching. One is we need to be watching hazard pay, whether or not there's going to be some type of federal hazard pay that comes out. Two, you mentioned masks. We know there isn't a federal mandate that there are masks that needs to be worn, but we know that there are now 14 additional states considering requiring masks in addition to the 26 that already do. And so we need to be watching that space with respect to required masks. We also need to be watching the unemployment insurance space. I mean, as you heard me mention, the enhanced unemployment benefits expire at the end of the month. Are we going to be looking at additional enhanced unemployment for more months? A lot of the, the small businesses and employers are saying, please don't do that. Because as you mentioned before, Emily, some people say, hey, I can ride this out with this $600. I don't want to go back to work. Um, and we need to watch out for uh, additional stimulus. So those are some of the things I think we need to watch out. Finally, I'll say, as I mentioned earlier, that the new comprehensive safety health measures that Virginia just promulgated that comes out this month, we should expect other states to put forth their own OSHA regulations and new enforcement rules since the federal government has not done so. Well, Jimmy just wrote the editorial calendar for the next month. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> what about one last 
last question here before we wrap things up. This was probably a, a bigger question a few months ago, but we don't know where this is going again. Mm-hmm. One big question that we got tons is, are painters considered essential workers? So in the event of another shutdown, where do painters stand in regards to essential workers? Yeah, and, and I think this is another area to add to Jimmy's list of <laughs> what we should be looking forward to or looking out for. We obviously see that there's been an uptick in positive cases. There are a lot of states that are having widespread kind of outbreaks now. And so we're starting to see slowly some states pulling back a little bit. So most states are in some type of phase reopening. If they're in phase three, let's say they're going back to phase two. California is starting to contemplate some stricter stay-at-home orders. And so we may have to, again, consider who are essential workers. And so we know that some employees are clearly designated as essential, public health, police, fire employees, first responders. In the construction space, usually construction workers or contractors who support the construction, operation, inspection, or maintenance of certain construction sites and projects for essential facilities are considered essential workers. Same with if they're working on um, necessary public works projects or critical construction. Most of those in the March-April timeframe were considered essential workers. But if it's just general residential construction um, that's not related to an emergency repair or project that somehow ensures structural integrity of the actual facility, then those are generally not going to be essential workers. And this is definitely dictated by state and locality law. There was no federal guidance or no federal mandate about who and who was not considered essential. And so you definitely have to look at your actual locality to determine if you fall within that. But generally speaking, if you're not working on something essential or some type of public work project, a painter would not be considered essential in most locations. Well, dang, Elizabeth Ebanks and Jimmy Robinson Jr., definitely the right people for the job. Those were uh, those were very thorough answers. Now, <laughs> it did not include nearly as many embarrassing stories about Emily Howard as I, as I was hoping. So one last question, Elizabeth, can you confirm no. that your high school mascot was the chipmunk and Emily was that mascot? Wait, Em, were you the mascot? I think you were the mascot, weren't you? She was definitely a cheerleader. She was definitely a cheerleader um, and beloved by everyone. Um, But we were the Cavaliers, actually. Uh, Chipmunk would have been adorable, and I would love to get you in that costume from And I would definitely would have been the mascot. (laughs) So was Elizabeth. God, I mean, that's, and we actually met each other in middle school. Yeah, I think it was seventh grade. Yeah. Yeah. We've known each other since we were like 11. We've known each other for a very long time, and you haven't changed a bit. You haven't either. <laughs> it was so fun. I'm so glad you guys got to come and do this with us. So are we. This was, this was great. Um, we love being able to kind of share this information. It's a hard topic for a lot, a confusing topic for a lot of people, and so we're happy to provide any guidance or answers that you guys need. Well, again... Elizabeth Ebanks and Jimmy Robinson Jr. of Ogletree Deacons. You can check them out at ogletree.com. Thanks again to Matt Waskowski, VP of Sales of Bear. Check them out at bearpro.com. Keep listening to Paint Radio. And also, I have to mention, we came out with a new reader testimonial video that you can watch on APC's YouTube channel. Talks about the various ways we help contractors and relative to podcasts. There is a cameo of Emily and myself 
doing the podcast. Unfortunately, that's in our old podcast studio, which was now a victim of COVID. Uh, but still, there we are. It's brief. It's not nearly enough, <laughs> but there it is. Nobody wants to watch us podcast. <laughs> this, see, this is a tester. This is, we'll see what kind of response we get, and it could launch our uh, our cable channel. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Who says cable channel anymore? What am I? What's, what's what cable? Am I, a boomer? <laughs> it sounded like it came from the nineties for sure. That's right. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be on MTV. So. Thanks for listening to Paint Radio. Elizabeth and Jimmy, you guys are great. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, guys.